Hey nerds, my name is Will Wheaton and you are hearing me talk. Uh, it is Sunday the 3rd of May and today I have something that I'm actually really excited to share with you. I was real excited to find this and I was so looking forward to reading it that I actually uh, decided to work on a Sunday. <laughs> I guess, I guess because this isn't really work for me. This is just fun. This is just me reading and then sharing with you the, uh, reading that I did. Um, I found a short story by Ray Bradbury. Uh, if you've been listening to these from the beginning, you may remember that, uh, some time ago, I found one of Ray Bradbury's early fanzines written when he was a very young man. Uh, and, uh, I, I was very excited to read it, but his writing in it was more of a letter from the editor. It wasn't really his beautiful Ray Bradbury fiction. Um, so uh, I searched around. I looked on Project Gutenberg. I looked on archive.org and I just couldn't really find anything. But yesterday uh, I was looking through the Pulp Magazine archive at uh, the Internet Archive. And while I was there, I found a book called Horrors in Hiding from 1973. This is one of those 1970s anthologies of work that was primarily written uh, in the early 1940s, going all the way back to the late 1800s. This is one of those books that I absolutely would have picked up as a young kid at the library because I loved anthologies and I especially loved horror anthologies. This story, if I can just sort of comment on it a little bit, is a little bit of a slow burn. Um, uh, and trigger warning, the narrative character talks about how he's choosing to end his life because of the horrors he's endured. Um, I just think that's information you may want to have. Uh, this book comes with a rather lengthy introduction to uh, this story, and I'm going to read you this introduction right now. The many years of apprenticeship that Ray Bradbury spent learning his craft before becoming a selling writer has been frequently commented upon, not only by his friends, but also by himself. Estimates of the amount of material he destroyed as unsuitable for publication ranges into millions of words. One of the reasons he entered the tight circle of science fiction fans in 1937 was that they published amateur magazines, which provided an outlet for would-be writers. Yet, though he contributed to many of them, Bradbury's published effort in the late 30s and early 40s tended to be more fragments than complete stories, displaying a side to his character literally never found in recent work, that of slapstick humor. There were a number of exceptions to this predominance of public buffoonery in his amateur efforts. One of them was the psychological fantasy titled Luana the Living, which appeared in the June 1940 issue of Polaris, a little more than one year before Bradbury sold his first story when he was 20 years of age. Polaris was a literary publication for its day, edited by a well-liked, serious-minded young man named Paul Freehofer, who was to die of a heart condition in March 1944. In addition to Ray Bradbury, the magazine ran fiction, poetry, articles, and artwork by names that are today highly regarded among the fantasy specialists, though some of them have received more universal acclaim. The magazine's six quarterly issues published from December 
1939 to June 1941, ran material by Hans Bach, Robert W. Lowndes, Dwayne W. Rimmel, R. H. Barlow, Donald A. Wolheim, Damon Knight, Wilson Tucker, Forrest J. Ackerman, John F. Burke, among others. From its third issue on, it was distributed free to the 50 members of the Fantasy Amateur Press Association, and it is extremely doubtful if its total circulation at any time ever exceeded 100 copies. In a special appreciation to Paul Freehofer, Ray Bradbury wrote in 1944, the other night I attended the Philharmonic Auditorium. I looked around to see if I could find Paul Freehofer. I couldn't find him. It was the first time I had been to the Philharmonic and had not found Paul somewhere in the audience. He loved the theater, ballet, and music so much. I didn't know, of course, what I know now. I didn't know that Paul Freehofer wouldn't be coming to the Philharmonic anymore. I only wish I could have seen Paul once more and thanked him for being such a liberal, intelligent man. He seemed to have a great wealth of understanding. His knowledge of science and literature was phenomenal. Paul had a substantial, unemotional, and intelligent approach to fantasy and science fiction. Luana the Living is of special interest to those who have followed Ray Bradbury's work since it is one of the few serious fantasies that predates his professional work and is obviously a completed unit, not an experiment or a fragment. He had not yet developed his own style and literary detectives could enjoy a field day determining influences, but after they are through considering H.P. Lovecraft and Lord Dunsany, they should quickly switch to the masterpieces of Wayne Rogers and Hugh B. Cave in horror stories and terror tales. This is the first time Luana the Living has ever been reprinted in any form since its initial publication. I hope that you enjoy this the same way that I do. It's really wonderful to read something that was written, if I've got the math correctly, when Bradbury was like 19. Uh, and just to imagine from the mind of a young 19-year-old who will go on to be one of the great genre speculative fiction writers of the 20th century, to see how his mind is working at that age and to see how he takes this idea and teases it out into a fully completed narrative is incredibly instructional to me as a writer myself and inspiring uh, to me as a writer myself. Um, I am thinking of my elder son, Ryan, who has been writing since he was about 19. And I am thinking about how he has developed over time. And um, I am just feeling really proud of my son right now. Um, so that is the last thing I will leave you with before I switch over to the actual recording of the file. I hope that you enjoy this. I hope that wherever you are, you are doing well, that you have enough, that you are happy, that you are safe, that you are healthy, and I will see you next time. Luana the Living by Ray Bradbury before I conclude this mundane existence, bid the terrors of the alien farewell, I must take my leave of all things light and dark. I must tell to someone the reason for my suicide. A horror clings malignantly to my brain, and far back in the recesses of the subconscious it burns like the pale flame of a candle in the tombs of the dead. It steals my strength and leaves me weak and trembling like a child. 
Try as I will, I cannot rid myself of it, for the night of the full moon forces its return. I am seated here in the dark, silent room, waiting. A few feet distant stands the huge grandfather clock that has been in the family for generations, its gaunt face glowing faintly in the blackness, striking out the hours with a low and gentle tone. The ancient timepiece shall accomplish the action I dare not trust to my shaking hand, for at the last stroke of midnight, fifteen minutes hence, a lever shall press the trigger of a a lever shall press the trigger of the revolver bolted to its side and send a bullet crashing through my heart. While I wait, I shall, I must, unburden myself of my tale. I am an adventurer, my life not one of common experience. But now, at one score and ten, I am an old man with silver hair and trembling figures. But now, at one score and ten, I am an old man with silver hair and trembling fingers. Fear has chiseled its effects in my face through sunken eye and wrinkles like those in the skin of a mummy. I am a spent and tired ancient, ready to close my coffin lid down and rest for eternity. Let me go back a year. Let me seek out the days that have passed, so short a time away, yet so hellishly removed by the constant torture that has made twelve months seem like a century. In India, back along the mountainous spine of the Himalayas in a dark region where tigers prowled, I had been deserted by my natives who had babbled of some superstitious legend about Luana. As I broke my way through a thick wall of brambles, I came across a hirsute individual who squatted cross-legged beneath a tree, puffing gently on his opium pipe. Hoping to gain a guide, I accosted him, but received no answer. I looked into his eyes, small almond holes in the midst of converging wrinkles, and saw no iris or pupil, just a small expanse of leaden flesh, as if the eyeballs had been rolled back in hypnotic sleep by the opium. And he said no word, but swung gently from side to side, like a sapling in the summer wind, spurts of smoke blowing from his lips. In a rage at his silence, I shook him until the pipe fell from his mouth. His jaw sprang down and his lips curled back, revealing a row of sharp yellow teeth. My stomach revolted at what I saw. He could not talk, this stranger, for his tongue was blue and shriveled like a dried fig which someone had slit open, its blood withdrawn. A dreamlike gibberish issued from far in his throat and I let him loose. Immediately the hands fumbled about on the ground, recovered the pipe, and replaced it in the mouth. He continued his tranquil puffing, blind and speechless, and I withdrew from the vicinity in haste. For the remainder of the day, I cut my way through jungle never explored by white man. Perishing from thirst and hunger, I tried unsuccessfully to follow barely discernible animal paths to a waterhole. When I tried to return to the point where I had hacked my way through the bramble barrier, both my path and the strange blind man had vanished. It was almost as if the brambles had grown together in the few scant hours. And when I saw the cut I had made in a tree earlier, I realized the brambles had grown, for the cut had moved upward visibly. This was a land of insanely growing jungle, where, where plants sprouted, grew, and died in a week or two. The carpet of vegetation was feet thick and strangely resilient, and the unpleasant jungle was hot and broad and quiet. 
Not even the bestial cry of a, of a tiger broke the oppressive silence, which pressed its fingers in upon me until I shouted to please my ears, to shock myself back into sanity. When I could no longer stand the strange lack of noise, I would run through brush and mire, slipping and falling and sliding until I was bathed in perspiration. Then I would sit and rest and watch the mud on my shoes dry and form into crooked cakes. And still, no sound. There was some grim thing that fettered this tree-bound terrain in soundless monotony. As the sun floated briefly on the ocean of leaves and branches and vanished in the west, I realized that this was a place apart, undisturbed by the outer world which it repulsed by its wall of thorns. There were few waterholes and animals in the land of silence, and the natives were furtive and rarely seen. I dimly recalled strange tales of them and this region about practices that took place in the light of the full moon. As twilight came, the cavern of space sprouted points of light that were the stars. Hours passed, and the hushed night became sprinkled with more and more of the silver points until a veritable blanket of light diffused the dome of heaven. As I sat and gazed upward through the trees toward them, I sensed a movement about me. It seemed that the whole forest was stirring to life. Little leaves slithered underfoot. Slender saplings wavered and shook, and the mighty jungle giants themselves bestirred and fluttered their leaves to the ground. In the dark it seemed that things grew threefold the speed of daylight, shot up and bloomed by some mysterious means. The trees broke the silence with a faint rustling, and the underbrush writhed with evil life. I arose and moved on as through a bog, the rot underfoot hindering me until I fell forward and sprawled with my face in the soil. Suddenly as I lay there, it seemed that tendrils swept up and clung to me, caressed my neck in an unrelenting grip until I strangled and gasped for air. Knotted vines wrapped swiftly on my forehead and pressed my temples until a stabbing pain flickered through me. I tore at my throat, feeling it with feeble gestures of the clutching things, and staggered to my feet. Oh, I read that word incorrectly. I tore at my throat, freeing it with feeble gestures of the clutching things, and staggered to my feet. Desperately, I stumbled on until my foot stuck. Desperately, I stumbled on until my foot struck water unexpectedly, and I ventured forward until the chill liquid reached my knees. My terrors was forgotten as I dropped to my knees in the scummy water and brushed aside the web-like debris. Ripples quivered underhand, and as I bent, I saw the stars reflected in its surface like dancing fireflies. I gulped in huge mouthfuls and wetted my forehead and my temples to ease the heated pain that dwelt there. Then I lay back and floated in the pool, watching the water caress my tattered boots and puttees. How long I lay and relaxed, I know not. When I emerged, dripping, I had found a new strength that grew by the minute. I stripped the torn shirt from me and soaked it in the water, then twisted it and tied it about my head so that its moisture would keep me comfortable for a while. The water clung to my skin, shimmering like a grayish slime. Intrigued by the dark now, my terror vanished, and I moved forward among the leaping tendrils. 
tiny rustlings, the secretive murmuring of water and soil, the high-pitched crackle of branches, sounded, and the jungle was a living, breathing creature that I walked upon. Then before me I could see a clearing where dark shapes poised in a circle in its gloomy depth. I stopped suddenly, as if frozen by a sudden blast of wintry wind. I squinted at the shapes crouching on the ground in the clearing. It seemed that I saw a double score of stone statues embedded in the soil, squatting and waiting, malignant. In the center crouched another presence, alone on the sodden surface. A light flecked the treetops a moment later. As the seconds passed, as the seconds passed by, the full sphere of the moon ascended, the star-sprinkled vault inch by inch. As the seconds passed by, the full sphere of the moon ascended, the star-sprinkled vault inch by inch. It saturated the clearing with silver and brought forth the crouching shapes like silhouettes on the jungle floor. Something moved. A figure shifted, and realization of what I saw came to me. These were men. Men waking as if from sleep, one by one. A soft, sighing sound as of wind stirred through myriads of leaves arose as the moon ascended. A, I advanced slowly, quietly toward the clearing. The creatures on the ground stretched long, thin limbs and knelt upon their knees, all bowing toward the moon in the crystal-clear sky, all with their emaciated backs toward me. They seemed creatures of some hypnotic spell. Their movements drug-like as they raised their fingers and gesticulated toward the lunar world that swung from the trees, a disk of blinding white. It was a scene painted in platinum. The moon dominated the sky and the stars paled to insignificance in its white fire. Now the members of the cult arose and swayed from side to side, swinging their hands and lamenting with deep-chested sounds. They swung about swiftly, undulated, and leaped and danced, the ground throbbing under their bare feet. In a circle they moved, hurtling up and slapping their palms together and weeping. They chanted and screamed and beat their bodies and swept by me without seeing. Like gnarled trees sprung to life they moved, naked and brown. But it was their eyes that caused me to fear, for they were leaden and white without pupils, as if burned to that sickly color by exposure to some changing light, as if dyed by the light of the moon. One man standing in the center of the racing throng stood and motioned to the moon, and I recognized him as the stranger I had accosted that morn, the man with the shrunken tongue and blind eyes. He was gibbering and urging his comrades on, and strangely, his words became gradually understandable in the tongue of the ancient Hindus. Great giving, Luana. Give us strength. Protect us. Keep us from the unholy spirit of the white man. Destroy the ulcer of the earth. All mankind, those who poison the true faith with their ignorance. Overcome with anger, I foolishly stepped into their midst with my revolver in my hand and commanded them to stop their ritual. They stopped as if struck by lightning, but only for a moment. 
Then, with cries of bestial rage, they advanced toward me, imploring the moon as it hung sus full suspended above the trees. Destroy this invader! Annihilate the ignoble savage who has seen the ritual of Luana, they pleaded. Luana lives and breathes. Luana, take revenge for us who are blind yet see your light! I leveled my revolver, praying that the water had not wetted the powder, and fired point-blank into one savage heart. With a curse on his lips, the man stumbled and fell, throwing me to the ground. From where I lay, I saw the others scatter wildly, weaving and vanishing into the jungle. I fired and kept firing until the hammer of my gun clipped harmlessly. Then I glared about and saw the last native kneeling on the ground and praying, I curse this man in the name of living Luana, he sighed. Without another word, he sank upon the sward and lay deathly still. If I had but known the consequences of my action! A fountain of light spurted down as I let my weapon drop, and I looked into the face of the moon and gasped. It seemed that it filled the sky with its bulk, flamed with a radiance brighter than the sun, battered me, and burned my eyes with its intensity. A wrathful, malignant sphere ravered, wavered over me as an evil god, and it seemed that the moon lived and breathed as did the jungle. It was as though this jungle were the moon's abode, these natives, its disciples, in some weird cult. I remember screaming once, a half-hearted scream of unbelief, and then I ran. Tearing away branches and slogging through marshy ground, I reached the bramble barrier and raised my knife to hack away the thorns. A sudden dizziness whirled over me, and I sank down into oblivion. The last thing I viewed was the pulsating pockmarked face of Luana glimmering hot on my eyes. The next morning I found myself outside the bramble wall on a familiar trail. My gun was gone and my knife had vanished also, but my mind made itself believe that all had been a nightmare. God, if only it had been. I returned to civilization immediately, and chartering a special plane reached America within the next twenty days. At home, here in the country, overlooking the California coast and the Pacific Ocean, I rested for a few days. But on the night of the next full moon. I could no longer sit upon my veranda. A vague warning issued from the vaults of the cratered moon itself, and squat alien figures seemed to crouch in the shade of the myriad trees. A sibilant and throbbing song like gushing blood echoed and pounded in my ears. My friends left me alone to my musings because of the fear I displayed, and an almost fanatical haste to escape the light of the moon as it dangled, a crescent of unfilled light in the heavens. The world had left me to my dreaming, my dreadful nightmares, and the errors that assail me. Of nights, I sat bolt upright and quaked to see the moon in all its odious whiteness cling upon the curtain of night to, bla to bathe my <laughs> to bathe to bathe my chamber in platinum. So frightened I became that I summoned a maker of tapestries and instructed him to hang upon the windows curtains of ebon color to shut out forever that pale and sickly-hued torrent of luminescence. But even though the shades were drawn and the curtains clamped tight, I heard the mourning of wind about the trees like the high-pitched mourning of those devil savages, stirring shadow creatures of life under the spell of Earth's satellite. 
And, growing from full moon to full moon, I have heard other sounds. Sounds of bestial activity springing up among the shrubs, as if those growths had been stung to live, and they cracked and shook with warning. Leaves crunched brittily on the trees and tore away to flutter impatiently on the sill of my retreat. Noises, noises that confounded and worried me, that urged me to desperation until clammy sweat broke out upon my brow. And then, twelve moons from that night in the jungle, I lay in the humid room in the dark, bathed in moisture, waiting for some cool breeze to bring me the sleep that I prayed for. A solid wave of heat crawled over me until all rational thought had fled and I was crazed for a breath of fresh air. I staggered to the curtains, shut my eyes tightly as if not to perceive the moon in all its somberness. I swept aside the shrouds and threw open the tall window, sucking in my breath, waiting to quaff the chilly night. Instead, a river of noise and a wind born of fire struck me fearfully. The wind harked louder and tore my remaining garments from me as I stood in its beating flames, swept around and burnt as if by some equatorial daylight. I clutched at the windows, seeking to shut them again, seeking to close off the chatter of leaves and wind and shadows, leaping with evil life. A noise like laughter descended from above. A song of hate from blasphemed nature, chant of sea and aria of birds, Trilling of zephyrs and thunder of tornado mingled in a rising clangor which hammered at me. Fire burned through me, scorched open my eyes, and made me lift my lids to view the moon where it lay in rafters of clouds. Like some god, titanic and wrathful, silver, its surface boiling like a cauldron, it drowned the sky in bulk and stabbed its colorless disk into my brain. The tempest was a continuous straining to break my eardrums. Somehow I closed the window, shut out the noise, pulled the curtains tight, and no longer saw the light. I remember moving dazedly back to my dressing table and standing before my mirror as I switched on the light. That was a fortnight ago. The time draws near for the clock to strike twelve as I sit and write these last few words. In one minute, as the clock strikes out the last note, I shall die. For a fortnight I have been in this room, never venturing out, though I am parched with thirst and hollow with hunger. I have not dared to venture forth. I am committing suicide because, ah, the clock strikes twelve. One, two, three. I am killing myself because when I turned on the light in my room and looked at myself in the mirror, I saw, through a gray film that clouded my eyes, I saw a gaping idiot, eyes leaden and white without pupils, face dead and thin, mouth dropped open, and my tongue was a shriveled black mass lolling between my teeth like a twisted rag. I bid you farewell. The clock tolls twelve. The End <laughs>